Um, hey, I'm, uh, let me grab this. We are finishing off um, a series that uh, Josh and I have been doing over the last couple of weeks about what we've called our cornerstone distinctives. Um, that's a very big head. Can we, uh, I'm not, can you just activate that click on it because I don't seem to be able to click it and move on. I think everyone's seen enough. Um, is that, yeah, there we go. Let's do it. So this has been um, a project we've been working on for about four years. I've explained that it started really when I stepped into the role uh, of senior pastor about four years ago as a, a bit of a personal project. It's just to give clarity about what is it, what is uniquely, what is the, the sort of identity of this community of faith. That, um, I think everyone acknowledges when groups of people get together, and I think this is particularly true of, of communities of faith, there's a sense in which we all bring something, but it makes something that is unique, the, con the collection of that, in that place at that time, of those people. Um, and I think it's a, a God-breathed thing. And so the, the project was to try and name, and it's a very lofty project really, and hence it's taken a while, uh, to try and name the things that we recognise that we've always, it's like God, is, these have always been important. When, when, when we say yes to these things, we really see sort of the favour of God. Um, with the idea of, and the way in which we've articulated this going through, we want to stay faithful these, to these things, but we want to pursue them in a new and a fresh way. So there's this sense, you've heard me do this example before, where we're staying tethered to these things in faithfulness, but also pursuing them into the future, with the idea that these have been very formative things for us, but should transform us into the future. And there's this thing, that, so that's sort of what we looked at. Um, and over the last few weeks, oh, by the way, Advent's coming next week. I don't know why that, I didn't mean that to be there, but I just, that was seamless the way I did that, wasn't it? You didn't notice that at all. But Advent is coming next week. Make room. Make room for the coming king in cinemas near you. Um, so we've looked at, um, there's five that we've looked at. The first one, Jesus following. And we actually came, this little series came off the back of us doing a whole series about Jesus um, and centering our lives on Jesus and rightly so. It's been a constant theme and, and as I've said, it's this idea, we, we've used these sentences to try and get this, this sense of dichotomy. We embrace the simplicity. Jesus is the great reset. When, when, when you get lost in the, in the complexity or the busyness, it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm just trying to follow Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? There's a simplicity that's profound in understanding ourselves as being followers of Jesus. Uh, but then we actually, as we discover, we do that, what do you know, following Jesus in this place and this time is actually quite complex. And actually we're going to have to come into contact with some real challenges around, um, around our sense of identity, our place in the world, politics, sexuality, all these things that are, actually there's a complexity there as well. We're not afraid of that here. We, we know. We, we say, yep. There are going to be times when we're going to ask, you're a part of the community of faith and journey with us, that you're going to go, hmm, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think about that. We think that's okay. In fact, we think that's healthy and good. And the fact that we would all sit here and we would preach from the front and you'd go, yeah, that's exactly right. We're wonderful. Great. No problem at all. We're probably not honouring Jesus enough because that seemed to be what he did, even to his disciples. So in following Jesus, we understand there will be a complexity. We're up for it. 
we think that's part and parcel. Spirit-filled. We're a Pentecostal church, and again, Josh so, um, so well uh, unpacked this for us. That is, we're part of a tradition that believes um, that the Holy Spirit works in and through his church the same way that he did in Acts. Um, and, and that's with power. And the Spirit has come to empower his church for mission and signs and wonders, and, and we, we believe all of it. If it's, if it's on the menu, we believe it should be being cooked in the kitchen. Now, that, as we pursue that into the future, means, well, what does that look like? Because some of us who've been in, in Pentecostal churches or been charismatic churches or just been in church, we know what that looked like in the 70s. We know what that looked like in the 80s, in the 90s. But God's always doing a fresh thing, right? So there's always going to be, we are staying faithful, but we're pursuing that into the future and we believe that bubbles from the ground up from the inside out um, and that's you know one of the reasons we do these sailor nights where we're trying to make space to say well as we seek God and all that he has for us what does that look like how do the gifts operate in that way here and now and so we're up for that journey missional talked about this idea that um, that God is up to something in the world and as a church, we're not trying to come up with ideas and then ask God to bless what we're doing. We're going to dig deep into scripture, deep into the history of the church, understand what has God always been doing, and say so we should join that. That's a better idea. Trying to convince God to do what we think, or join with him in what he's doing in the world. And you might remember I played that um, clip from uh, the missiologist Michael Frost, who says, well, really, summarise, what, what's God do? What's the mission of God? It's to declare and demonstrate that Christ is king. What does that look like? It looks like reconciliation. Those four things that I thought were just so elegantly put. Reconciliation. It's justice. It's beauty. It's wholeness. That's what God's doing in the world. And so we're looking to join him in doing that. And we believe that that's the purpose of the church to be about what God is doing in the world. But as we've got in our specific context, that, that's, that's true across time and history and across, across all places. But what does that look like for the inner northwest of Brisbane? Because that's where there's a sense of locality that we have as a church. And then from here, it sort of goes all around the world. But there's a sense in which we own our specific context to outwork that. You own your context, your street, your family, your workplace. What does it look like to be sent? What does it look like to bring reconciliation, uh, justice, beauty, and wholeness to your workplace, to your family? Good question. Last week we looked at family. Again, Josh, the, you see the dichotomy, the sense in which we believe we will shape ourselves around the fact that we are family. We're better together. We're all in here. But there's the space. The, actually, the richness of families that we're in fact very different. I think, was it Josh who made the point? I felt like you maybe even overdrew the point of, to the point, risking offence because he kind of said, I don't think we something like, we probably wouldn't have chosen to be together. I'm not, did you say that? That was just me to you. That was me to you. That was just the staff meeting, sorry, that's right. You all thought it, but you look around the room and, and someone said, why are all these people together? Well, it's a good question, but we're better together. It, it's such a glorious thing. and it's a, it's a prophetic witness to the world that a group of people so different would choose to walk so closely. And now more than ever, the world needs prophetic examples of that. And so we are family. I'm going to talk about the fifth one in a moment. 
Um, but one of the things I just wanted to say, what, why are these things important? We're, we're sort of introducing these oh, just in the lead up to Christmas. Going into next year, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them. You'll see it around the place. Why are they important? Well, what we're saying is, um, th this is our way of articulating that idea that, that as a community of faith, we recognise that these have always been, have been shaping for us and will continue to shape us into the future. Um, one of, the, one of the, the, the biggest influences on my life in a leadership sense, a spiritual a Christian leader, um, is actually Joy's brother, Murray Averill, who many of you will know. Murray was, um, when I met him, he was my first, well, actually, Rob Burgess was my first boss. Where's Rob? Rob? Did I see Rob? He's not here. So Rob, I, that's 20 years old. Do you believe they let 20-year-old become teachers? I don't think they do anymore. I might have been the reason, maybe. I might have contributed. I was 20, which seems scandalous. Um, I was a teacher. Rob Burgess was actually my sort of head of the, the secondary school. But Murray Averill, who had arrived the year before, so had Rob the year before, to start the secondary school at Northside Christian College. And it had been very well established. Actually, Charles was central in establishing the church and been very involved, uh, sorry, in the school. But Murray had come to lead a, quite a significant cultural change to, to make it a, a college um, and to really uh, move it from this next stage of being a Christian school attached to a church to being sort of something in its own right. And so I had the privilege of watching Murray. It was quite small. The staff at that time was quite small. So I was very close. And, and, and to watch him lead significant cultural change, Lynn and I, Lynn was, uh, I shared a, a form class with Lynn. Um, again, scandalous that they let Lynn teach as well. But the two of us together, unbelievable. She's still there. I mean, and actually she's doing a wonderful job. Um, it's not scandalous at all. Um, but here's the thing. I got to see uh, and really up close see cultural change and Murray was always great at, and maybe he saw something in me or he just got bored and wanted someone to talk to. It was, uh, and he would always sort of unpack what was going on and he had this wonderful way of uh, the wisdom to sort of say things in a sentence but sometimes he didn't understood it, understand it fully but I knew there was the wisdom therein. But one of the things he would say is leaders um, struggle, the, the challenge of leading change is to say no to things. And particularly, I think this is true, and he pointed out uh, in the church or in Christian endeavours, because if it's good, then hey, it's good. So, we, you know, everything's good. You know, you can justify any good thing that because we're Christians, we should do this. And so the sharpness of leading change is not about what you say yes to, it's about what you say no to. And his phrase that stuck with me is that you, can, um, you say no because there's a bigger yes inside. And that was really transformative. And he, his point was, if you don't have a big yes inside, you're not able to say no. And so you say yes to everything, which is kind of the same way of saying no to everything when you say yes to everything. And so that really stuck me. The sense here is these are the things that we're saying yes to. And at times that means we might say no to the other things. Or it might look like we're saying no to other things, but it's because there's this big yes. Let me give you an example. We say yes. Every now and then we have a conversation with, with, about a children's ministry, and this has happened over the years. You know, there's some, there's some things that'd be good if, if the children went, went, were a part of the children's program from the start of the 
of the meeting. But we say yes to worshipping all together. Why? Because we're family. And so there's actually some really good reasons, and other churches do it, and that's fine. There's some really good reasons. And maybe even at some stage, we might do that. I'm not sure. But every time we've had a discussion, in some form or another, it comes back to, but we're family. So no, we wouldn't do it. We'll say yes to this. Now, hear me well. We need to do the worship we do at the start better. And you've heard me say this before. Because sometimes we're just worshipping and our kids are watching us. That's not good enough. We want to be family. Occasionally, there have been rich moments. I think of times when Sherilyn has done those um, godly play stories or we do a song together. and that They're rich moments. Now, you might not personally say yes to doing a Colin Buchanan song. <laughs> you might say no to a Colin Buchanan in the rest of your life. But I'm trusting when you're there, you're saying yes because we are family. So there's an example of how that shapes us. Sherilyn mentioned before, Michelle, this Christmas, we decided we want to go out. There's good things that are happening. I was actually having a conversation with Charles, uh, many conversations over the last couple of years, bouncing these things off him, sort of, does this seem right? Or, and we were talking about, I think it was the missional one. Um, and Charles had this wonderful way that I, 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 I think we will incorporate more. We're talking about, the, he was talking about the energy of the church and think of the way in which, if you think of energy, it's something spinning, a machine spinning. Charles had really accurate technical science language. I don't have it. I'm just going to do actions. <coughs> so if you think of something spinning and there's an energy and in ch churches, there's stuff going on and it feels like we spin and we spin. That spinning can have two effects. It can either draw things in, which is called a... Centrifugal? No, when it draws in, that's a... Is that centrifugal? No, that's when it's... it's it draws stuff in. <laughs> I knew I should have got it. It sucks stuff into the middle. And church can be like that, right? It can just suck you into the middle. And ironically, the closer you get to the middle, the more you get sucked into the middle. Like a black hole. Like a black hole. Thank you. Much better. Like a whirlpool. A missional church still spins, but it spins in a way that it ejects you out into the community. So the idea this Christmas, yeah, we're asking you to be a part of something. We are asking you to use your time and your energy to be a part of something, but to be ejected out into something that God's already doing. Now, there, will, there has been and there will continue to be times when we unapologetically say, hey, guys, we're going to do this all together. And I was saying to our team the other day, oh, when we stand here and ask, Hey guys, we'd like you to be involved in that. I want to be unapologetic. Sometimes I catch myself, either in my spirit or overtly, it leaks out. Look, sorry about this guys, but da da da. And I think, well then why are we doing it? If I'm apologetic. I don't want to be a part of a church that's apologetic. When we ask you to give your time, your money, your talents, I want to know, I want you to know, to trust that if we're doing this, it must be worthwhile. Now that's probably going to be clearer when you see that there's other times when we won't do things for the sake of doing it. This Christmas is one of those. Go and be a part of it. It'll be really disappointing. All we need is sort of groups of five or ten at each of these to go and be a part of something that's going to bring so much light and joy. I'm your brother, not your mother. So you might have something better on and that's fine. You don't even need to give me an explanation. That's on you. But if you don't, do it. Because it's going to be good. I know that. I'm unapologetic. 
this morning. There might be other things later. You can hear about that. <coughs> but that's the idea of a missional church. It spits people out. Can you see how these things start to shape us? That's the idea. When we say yes to these things, they will continue to shape us into the future. Here's the one. This last one, boy, there's been a, there's maybe been sort of 50 people who've, who've been over the last, yeah, like I said, maybe at the last two or so years, very intentionally, we've spent a lot of time looking at words, and this last one has been a headache. Possibly because it's the most cornerstone one. If there's like a secret source, a special source for cornerstone, we're trying to capture it in this one, and boy, did we struggle with the word. And I think we've landed on something, but it needs a little bit of understanding. When we say this, this is what we mean. So the word that I originally started with is, if you've been around Cornerstone, and Christy and I came in, 19, we'd just been married, 1995. And so being involved, we were obviously nine years in Geelong, but being involved that long, and there's this clear pattern when people come and stay, or when they come and don't stay, um, they'll often use frame, uh, terms like this. It's a bit quirky. Uh, it's, um, it's very organic. Uh, sometimes I think, I think that might be code for other things. I'm not sure if that's good. But like authentic. The, the word that I used in the first version of this was like grounded. We, for a while there, I, um, we, were, we were working with the word substantive. Uh, the idea of, its, of weight rather than it, and, and it was kind of right, but it didn't have a lot of poetry to it. Josh came up with it. Um, <laughs> classic academic. It was accurate, but boring. Um, so it's this thing um, that, that describes um, a sense in which Cornerstone has, there's always been a freedom, and I, again, I, I, I honour Charles and Chris in this, to make room for us to be in our own lane to gladly be a part of the broader, our broader movement, ACC, and the broader church. It's not like we don't play well with other churches. We love to play with other churches, but we know kind of who we are, and we'll do things differently. Now, in my family, I'm about to do a thing where I'm gonna tell a story. There's money coming your way, because I forgot I was gonna, we've got this thing that if I tell a story about the kids and don't warn them or ask them beforehand, they get money. And I've done it again. So money is coming your way, kids. There's this thing in our family um, where, I, as uh, particularly uh, Daisy and, and Jonah as they've grown, they've got great taste in music and art, and Daisy in particular loves, uh, Ruthie, you'll love this, loves film and, and TV and stories, and I'm continually impressed by the stuff they, they watch, because it's, it's substantive. It's, it's not pop culture sort of stuff, but there's this thing that we say and I don't know, I think this might have come from a movie as well, maybe. And when we say we, I think I say it the most. But if someone's like trying to be a little bit too impressive with their worthiness, that here's, here's something that no one else knows about but I do, we kind of say, oh, you're not like the other girls, are you? And it's like, I think it comes from this idea that, oh, you're a little bit different, and, but sort of pointing out to someone who's maybe got their sense of pride in being different to me, you're not like the other girls. Cornerstones may be a little bit, little bit not like the other girls, but I would hope it never, ever gets to a point in which there's a sense of our identity is at pride. We, we, do, we don't do things with the, the other church. That would be, um, that'd be horrible. That'd be arrogant. 
Um, that'd be just not of God. But there is a sense for us in which that, that's what this is about. Um, I've got to have, the word we actually went with is wholehearted. And mostly because of the second thing that I'm going to talk about for just a couple of moments. So there's sort of two aspects. The first is this sense in which authentic, grounded, rustic, organic, we do our own thing. Um, it's not, we, we don't want to be a church with, where our faith is sort of a mile wide and showy, but an inch deep. All that sort of, you know, I think you know what I'm saying. The second thing actually also, this wholehearted, connects to something that maybe many of you are already aware of. Um, uh, when this per, when whoever came up with this word, it might, who was it? I think it was Chris or Charlie or someone, Charlie might have said this word, wholehearted. And there was a sense, yeah, that's a, that's, we get where that's going, but partly because it's a bit of a connection to something more broadly, and you might be familiar with this lady, Dr. Breen, Brené Brown. Um, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago now, she gave, she's a social researcher, um, she's a, a, a sociologist, and she has studied a lot about communities and connection and, hand, and um, people dealing with shame and um, she gave probably one of the most famous TED Talks. You remember TED Talks? No one, yeah, we, we sort of moved on from TED Talks. But she gave one of the most famous TED Talks, I'm gonna show a clip in a moment, where she went to study, why is it that people are disconnected? She actually wanted to study connectedness. And she said, the funny thing is when you ask people, and so she's a researcher, so she had hundreds and hundreds of interviews with people, where she's, tell me about what makes you connected to people. And she said, the funny thing is when you ask people about connectedness, they tell you stories of disconnection. And she goes on to talk about wholeheartedness. When you, when you look at, at wholeheartedness, people tell you stories of brokenheartedness. That's how people come, that's the human experience of how we come to that. And so she looked into this sense of, to this experience, this human experience of disconnection. And she found a couple of things behind that. We're just going to, I'm going to play this video because many of you will have seen this. Some of you wouldn't, but she says it much better than I do. Off we go. thought, this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in. I'm going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to spend a year. I'm going to totally deconstruct shame. I'm going to understand how vulnerability works and I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready and I was really excited. As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um, <laughs> you know this. So I could tell you a lot about shame, but I'd have to borrow everyone else's time. But here's what I can tell you that it boils down to. And this may be one of the most important things that I've ever learned in the decade of doing this research. My one year has turned into six years, thousands of stories, hundreds of long interviews, focus groups, at one point, people were sending me journal pages and sending me their stories, um, thousands of pieces of data, um, and six years. And I kind of got a handle on it. I kind of understood this is what shame is, this is how it works. I wrote a book, I published a theory, but something was not okay. Um, and what it was is that if I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness. That's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness. They have a strong sense of love and belonging. And folks who struggle for it, 
and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it, and that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. And to me, the hard part of the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection was something that personally and professionally I felt like I needed to understand better. So what I did is I took all of the interviews where I saw worthiness, where I saw people living that way, and just looked at those. What do these people have in common? And I have, I have a slight office supply addiction, but it's another talk. Um, so I had a vanilla notebook, a vanilla folder, and I had a Sharpie, and I was like, what am I gonna call this research? And the first words that came to my mind were wholehearted. These are kind of wholehearted people living from this deep sense of worthiness. So I wrote at the top of the vanilla folder, and I started looking at the data. In fact, I did it first in this very four, in a four-day, very intensive data analysis where I went back, pulled these interviews, pulled the stories, pulled the incidents. What's the, what's the theme? What's the pattern? My husband left town with the kids um, because I always go into this kind of Jackson Pollock crazy thing where I'm just like writing and, and going and kind of just in my researcher mode. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard it earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the, reason, for the ex explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very 
you know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown, <laughs> which actually looked more like this. Um, and it did. It led to a, I call it a breakdown, my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening. <laughs> spiritual awakening sounds better than breakdown, but I assure you it was a breakdown. And I had to put my data away and go find a therapist. Let me tell you something. You know who you are when you call your friends and say, I think I need to see somebody who, do you have any recommendations? Because about five of my friends are like, woo, I wouldn't want to be your therapist. Um, <laughs> And they're like, I'm just saying, you know, like, don't bring your measuring stick. Um. When I saw that for the first time, um, I remember, uh, remember seeing that and thinking, that's like, uh, I've never heard so much deep understanding of who we are as human beings without God being mentioned. It was like the book of Esther to me. I don't know if you know about the book of Esther, but actually God is not mentioned. Literally, is not mentioned in the book of Esther, yet God's all over it. Um, it was no surprise to me to then know, actually, when she talks about spiritual... She has talked since then that actually that spiritual awakening was genuinely... Her, she grew up in the church. She came back to faith. Part of that was her coming back to faith and back to the community of faith that... that, that you know, so it was, it was no surprise to me. And she, she speaks about the in other places, about the central role of being able to forgive. But as she talks about these things, the wholehearted believe they are worthy, just look at this through the lens of what a community of faith should be. And what I believe Cornerstone, at its best, has been for so many, believe that, that the wholehearted believe they are worthy of love and belonging. The courage to tell the story of who you are with the whole heart. This has been a place where people have found they can tell their whole story. And there's a journey of trust in that, and, and that, that takes a while. But that's what the Church of Jesus Christ, the community of faith, should be, where people can be themselves, the fullness of that. Compassion, connection as a result of authenticity. That's this thing when people can be themselves and they find connection. <coughs> After someone knows who they really are, that's real connection. That's, that's actually brotherhood or sisterhood. That's family. When someone who knows who you really are and chooses to come closer and chooses to remain, that is a family. And again, there are stories here. That's the, the body of Christ. Not at all uniquely cornerstone, but I think our best moments have been in this space and need to be so much more. Remembering we want to stay faithful to this, but pursue it even more. What makes us vulnerable makes us beautiful. As I was thinking and preparing about this this week, because it was probably two months ago when I knew I'd be preaching on this on this morning, I did think of this. What makes us vulnerable makes us beautiful. I was thinking of it, knowing that the... Um, uh, in Turkey, there, were, there was this room where there was this women who were coming from very vulnerable positions because of their faith. Emotionally vulnerable. They're coming from families and, and, and um, cities, communities and nations where they were emotionally, um, 
spiritually but even physically vulnerable and broken yeah, coming together and a hundred women from all around the world were uh, flying there coming around including a bunch of our people to come and be a part and there would be a room as Liz described before Ruth was described wherever they come and they would literally put these pieces back together because you can't understand wholeheartedness without understanding brokenheartedness. Mm -hmm. There is no wholeheartedness without acknowledging brokenheartedness. And Cornerstone is a place, again, I, 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 I'm not being exclusive, but I think it is some of our best moments where people have come brokenhearted. I'm one of those. Come brokenhearted. And people have loved me and said you can tell your whole story you don't need to leave some of that story because we don't want to listen to that here and in the process of that by the spirit God starts to pour gold and we experience that what makes us vulnerable makes us beautiful it's so true I think get a show of the video a video at the moment just a, it's a summary of what's happened it's beautiful and then we're gonna um, you know I know we're, uh, we're, we're pushed for time this morning we're going to spend a few more moments and show a video of actually a bit of a summary of, uh, of a rise wholeheartedness this thing it leads us back to Jesus following because the reason for our love and acceptance the reason why we can feel worthy it's at the center of our story. It's at the center of our worship. We're going to, as the we play this video in a moment, I invite you to take the the, um, the the communion cup and the wafer and to thank God that He, the reason why this is a community of faith where we where your whole story is welcomed, your, where your vulnerability is made beautiful, is because that's what Jesus did. You're made worthy, not because of what we have done. It's like the song that we've been singing. It's because we. We recognise the worthiness comes in what Jesus was prepared to do. That's at the centre of our story. So our brokenheartedness leads us, leads us back to the cross. And on the other side of the cross, we find wholeheartedness. And I just, I pray that we continue to shape ourselves around valuing being wholehearted people with the courage to tell our full story. I'm going to play the video. Like I said, you're welcome to, um, uh, as we do that, in your own time, just partake of the, the wine and the bread, thanking Jesus for what he's done. But we'll, we'll play the video now, and then after that, the band's going to come. Let's close. Give me your blood.